Jackson, how are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Josh. I, I know it's been a long day. It's, it's uh, I, I assume, a stressful day, but you look like it's not that stressful. I think I had a pretty good time. We had a good time in part because of how receptive uh, your faculty and staff are. And then we had visitors from outside, even from other states. And everyone seemed to be having um, yeah, a truly good time. And by that, I mean they were serious about our subject matter. They really wanted to dig into the texts that we had chosen. And uh, the talks, the lectures were, uh, I think, edifying. So I think it was a good good day on the whole. Fantastic. Well, it really has been a great day. And uh, it's, especially if you can say that at uh, 4.15 in the afternoon after a full day conference, that's right. that's, 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 that's right. a great And sign. we started at 8. So yep, we did. Still going. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? Uh, here at What's the Res, we are always looking to be contributing to the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a debate coach and humanities instructor at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. Today, my guest is Dr. Robert Jackson. Uh, Dr. Jackson, you'll have to forgive me. I, I may need your help with getting the credentials correct, <laughs> but uh, I, I did not do my homework and look this up earlier. No uh, but my understanding is that you are the Director of Academics for Great Hearts Academy and also the Director of the Institute for Classical Education. So the, the moniker is formerly the Chief Academic Officer. Thank you. And then you had it right on the second score, Director of the Institute for Classical Education. That's excellent. Right. Yep. Excellent. Well, I'm so glad that you and uh, the other two gentlemen were able to be here with us today. It's been a wonderful day of discussing literature uh, and, and looking at the application that has mm -hmm. to everything else we do in the school world. And I was telling uh, one of my colleagues earlier today, it felt like we're in English major heaven today. <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's right. Well, this I thought about this episode uh, in part because I was looking ahead at some of the potential Lincoln-Douglas debate resolutions uh, coming up. And there's one that is on the slate for 2019-2020. No, we don't know for sure if that one will be picked because they, they do more than the six that they do throughout the year. Mm -hmm. um, but it focuses on charter schools. Mm. And I know that's an area of expertise for you. So I was hoping you could lend us some of your expertise about charter schools. Okay. Today. Happy to. What do you want me to start? Uh, well, let, let's start with, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that some of the people who would listen to this episode are uh, doing so not because they want to know about a lesser arm of American education, but because they have to research it for a debate. Mm -hmm. So let's start where all good debates start with definitions. Okay. Uh, what exactly is a charter school? Charter school is a public school that has been authorized by the state, which of course is where education is governed formally per the Tenth Amendment, uh, this being the duty of the state to provide for the education of its citizens, uh, the charter law makes space for an entity to step forward and uh, effectively take on a contract with the state. Uh, that is, we will offer education to students, this is a charter operator, okay. we will offer education, formal education, K-12 education, to students uh, using the following model uh, with these parameters so as to achieve these outcomes which the state agrees are desirable. So it is a function of the state to then agree first to the contract terms and then to dispense based on the fulfillment of those terms per pupil funding to that school for each of the students that is enrolled. So effectively, yeah, just to boil it down, it's a contract between an entity that is taking on the responsibility of a public school, to operate as a public school at, at the state, you know, with, with, with an agreement with the state, and then will be held accountable for whatever outcomes that state has for its 
for its other district schools. So we think of public schools chiefly as the ones down the street that are under the district model. The charter model uh, is simply an arrangement that works in a variety of ways. So this is where it gets complicated. It can be a direct charter from the state. It can be a charter authorizer who is working as a district. And a district, a district, a local district, can determine that they want to offer a charter model, right? to partner and contract with someone. Okay. Or you can have a county step forward. We see this a lot in, in Colorado, as an example, where a county will step forward and say, we will be the charter authorizer. So the state will determine what regulatory entity, what uh, uh, essentially what executive entity is going to oversee the charters, will come into this contract with that entity to provide public education to the students of that locale. So it really does vary in a it lot does. of different, it sounds like it would be, I mean, I know here in North Carolina, we have an increasing number of <clears throat> charters in recent years. There, those, uh, our, our, my school's founder, Bob Luddy, also started Franklin Academy as a public charter school here in Wake Forest. But when he went back for a second charter, because they had maxed out Franklin's size per the charter, mm -hmm. uh, the state was not giving out any more such arrangements. But right. Re more recently, they've opened those up, and there seems like there's a Youngsville charter, and there, there's, there's charter schools popping. There's Rollsville charter right down the street. They're everywhere. So what you're seeing there, Josh, is uh, the politics of education. Now, that's stating a truism, but I find it fascinating that charter laws, the very first charter laws in these United States, uh, began in the mid-'90s. I want to say 94. Minnesota was the first okay. state. So have your, anybody listening to this, make sure you do your homework. I just don't have my Wikipedia ready or at hand. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Debaters are good at that. Okay, sort of 94 detail. or so, mid-90s, uh, when the first charters were, and I do know it was Minnesota. Shortly after that, California, Arizona, uh, maybe 96. So there was this uh, emergence of the, of the model of states that could adopt charter legislation. So it's a law that permits this arrangement that, that I'm describing to you. And it's really, uh, you know, it's 25 years old. Uh, that's about all there is to it. That's not that old it's in terms not of all. educational tradition. Not at all. Not at all. You know, if we think back to the emergence of high schools and districts, uh, which numbered in the tens of thousands back at the turn of the 20th century, as the 20th century was unfolding, you really had this explosion in the teens and 20s uh, of districts across the country. And, uh, and, and so when we look at charter laws and charter schools, that's a relatively recent phenomena. Uh, district schools, uh, the typical district school is the dominant model. And in that sense, uh, has served as the status quo, to use a term that might be might come up in forensics, yep, uh, yep. the status quo for public education. Now, just since you dropped that term, and that's usually something that, that people, only those who are sort of in the know about the forensics world drop mm -hmm. correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, what is your knowledge of or background with forensics? No, I have, I have very little, except, okay. except the, uh, the debate team at uh, my former institutional home, the King's College in New York City, uh, served as their faculty uh, supporter, promoter. Uh, oh, was wonderful. Not, yeah. So you're a friend of the yeah, debate I'm, world. Yeah, I'm definitely a friend of the debate world. Uh, one, of my, one of my best students, in fact, went on to teach uh, in a classical school, the, the classical schools with which I'm uh, affiliated, the Great Hearts Academies, and uh, is still there. So I have a, I have a tie to, to the world of, of debate. 
Never, sadly, unfortunately, uh, never experienced it as a high school student. I wish, you know, if I could go back, if I could roll back the tape, I would, I'd, I'd jump in both feet. It, it's, it's really been wonderful to watch. I didn't have it in high school either. Mm -hmm. I had a, we had a single speech and debate class that uh, Mr. Woods taught, and uh -huh. uh, he managed to work in, oh, there were so many dirty joke tongue twisters oh, that geez. he insisted that we had to try. And we were in trouble if we mispronounced any of them. But uh -huh. It was great training, but that was really the extent of, of, of that. But uh, I got into this in, in college, and okay. it's. But I've loved watching the effects of debate on my high schoolers because mm -hmm. invariably it speeds up their thinking. They become so quick at writing, and they know that research doesn't just mean you read the first three articles that Google turns up. You right. have to get deeper. You have to dig in. That. You have to dig in. Yeah. That's right. Now, since you mentioned King's College, I don't suppose you know uh, a guy named Paul Mueller in their economics department. I do, but Paul joined the faculty uh, after I had left. I, I think so. Yeah. He was uh, he was a couple years ahead of me at Hillsdale College, okay. but I, I've thoroughly we reconnected at the uh, Acton Institute conference yeah. a few years ago. Yep. He's acquired a beautiful bushy beard, and a uh, I think he's on the road to tenure with with King's, yep. if I remember correctly. Fantastic. Good anyway, let's get back to charter schools now. Uh, now, part of the, the resolution that I'm thinking of is this would be particularly pertinent to. Uh, it's, a, it's a negative one in the sense that uh, the resolution reads something like charter schools harm public education. Mm -hmm. So and I've, I've heard that uh, my, my grandfather was in public education for mm -hmm. his entire career. Uh, he was a teacher and then a principal, and eventually he moved into textbook sales with Glencoe McMillan. And when I, I once mentioned to him that Franklin is a charter school, he didn't even listen to the fact that I don't teach there. He just launched into a narrative about how charter schools clearly harm public education because they steal funding. Mm. Now, I was curious if you could make a response to that because I'm, I'm yeah. sure you've heard such arguments before. I have, and uh, my first impulse is to want to define the harm, right? What harm would be done? Uh, we find that charter schools first came uh, uh, to light or first came into existence in part, uh, largely led by a coalition of public school teachers, you know, so district school teachers. Um, I'm going to forget the name here, so I apologize. I should know this history like the back of my hand. That's but, okay. uh, but, uh, but there was a, uh, a union leader. Uh, of the American Federation of Teachers who stepped up, I think, very courageously to provide support for and believe that charters would make possible uh, an alternative to the district structure that had basically uh, created a stranglehold, especially on very large districts where there was little mobility or opportunity for students, especially students in the most um, depressed neighborhoods. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this, this coalition of public school educators and administrators and even union leaders uh, stepped forward to say, we support this. In fact, it was their brainchild. You, you could turn back, you know, if you wanted to roll the clock back and discuss something like Milton Friedman's proposal. Yes, that's there in the 70s, right, that he thought there was, there was advantage to allowing the open market to determine the quality of schools, allowing parents to vote with their feet, right, and to and to see dollars, that is to say state monies, follow students and allow families to make choices, right? That was an early proposal, but that never became a policy nor a law 
that was a that was a brainchild. That was an idea. Sure. And and, and really an idea that we would associate more with vouchers, right? With sort of a direct, here's oh, your money, okay. take it where you'll go, be it public, private, or at home for that matter, as we now look at homeschooling. Uh, but 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 what I want to point to is the fact that the originators of charter education, the charter law in Minnesota, were determined that this was the best or most effective way to sort of break up the gridlock, hmm. right? To sort of to 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 make more opportunities available to the students who needed it most. And I would add, of the nearly seven thousand charter schools that dot this land. Uh, the vast majority, I would say probably 90%, are, are focused around mission, uh, a mission or missions that, uh, that aim to serve the underserved. Interesting. So, so I think the spirit of the first charter laws and the spirit of the continued growth and expansion of charter legislation, which now touches most of the, of the 50 states, uh, is really driven by uh, a desire uh, an impulse to care and to serve the underserved. So it really sounds like the charter school movement is in part a response to an existing lack of ability of these larger districts to really effectively serve sections of their communities that honestly may not have existed when that district model was first developed. Is that, that's is that right. a fair read? No, that's right. And and so I wanted to come back around to the notion of harm, mm. right? Because if we're talking about benefit... Uh, and or who it is that schools, public schools, uh, are designed to serve, the real harm that we need to look at first at the origin of, of charter schools, the origination of charter schools, is the harm that was perceived by public school teachers uh, occurring with students who could not help themselves. Hmm. Uh, so, but I don't mean to dodge the question. I just want to set that as our context or backdrop. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then suggest that as these charter schools continue, as I said, to seek out and serve populations of usually the the the, uh, the, 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 the typical metric of how uh, how large a population of uh, students, really needy students, are, is what's called FRL, free and reduced lunch. That's often a, mm-hmm. a kind of a, mo- a metric by which we'll say, well, there's 80% of the population is free and reduced lunch. That's clearly the socioeconomic demographics represent a significantly poor population. Uh, I would say, as I said a moment ago, probably 90% of these schools are really looking to serve 70 or 80 or more percent uh, of an FRL population. So, but to your question, uh, again, not to dodge it, your question about do they harm schools, district schools, I, I would say charter schools are producing uh, an opportunity for families to choose. Families in uh, a given district, as it's zoned in a particular community, can in fact choose their district school. They will have to make a choice. They will have to go through quite a process if they think that the charter school down the street or even across town, this is, again, depending on the state, but I think most charter laws permit families, if they can find the means, or if the school can somehow assist them, they can go to school in any part of, you know, anywhere that they can get to, basically. Okay. All right. So they can go to charter school across town if they choose. 
uh, they're going to have to go to great lengths both to seek out that school, to uh, register. Most states are going to be based on a lottery system, so they'll, they'll have to stand in queue, as it were, not stand, but, you know, uh, metaphorically, right, right. get in queue, and then be selected by lottery uh, and go through the registration process. But it's open to any student. And so I think to myself, if we're talking about harm being done because monies that would otherwise go to this district are going to that charter school, whether around the corner or across town, my question becomes, does the district school believe, I'm sort of turning your question with a question, right? Does the district school believe that it has the right and should be able to demand that families send their child to the local district school? Is, is that, in fact, a just rendering of our understanding of public K-12 education? That's very. That's a very interesting response because that kind of pushes the the uh, the impetus of the question back on the other side to suggest that really it's the the district school is in a sense tyrannizing what certainly seems self evidently a a natural choice or a natural ability of families to make a choice and families with means do make that choice mm. right this we have seen sociologically uh, demographically that when families who have the means decide that it's time to find a district that they believe to be suitable, that they believe will benefit their children, they will move. Mm. They, will, they will move to the neighborhood, to the district where they want their children to be enrolled in a school. And they, those with means, are able to do so. Those without the means are stuck. So when we say, or when the position is taken, uh, that charter schools are doing harm to district schools by siphoning off money, again, I am, I am reorienting that question towards what is our end? What should be the end of K-12 public education and the dollars that support it? And I believe, as I'm sure you can surmise, that it should be to serve the families and the students, all of them, whether those families have means or not, but especially with an eye and a concern for those who do not have the means to simply relocate to the district of their choosing. Well, it sounds like what you're describing is a is a is a relatively effective, and and I'm sure there's a spectrum of success sure, stories, sure. And less less than successful charter schools, but it sounds like on balance what you're describing is really an effective public, private, local, state level partnership mm. that really enables a greater amount of choice from parents who are looking. Who honestly, at least the parents I've met, are not necessarily interested in what is the good of the entire state. Mm -hmm. They're very concerned about the good of their children. That's right, as they should be, yeah. as they should be. And, and I am describing that kind of nexus uh, specifically between a kind of entrepreneurial spirit that comes from somewhere, you know, in, in what we might call private life. But these are families whose private lives are then intersecting with public policy, mm -hmm. namely the laws associated with public schooling, and for them to become involved in that process, that political process, exercising their vote and exercising their uh, capacity to influence the lawmakers who are there to serve them, to provide, and when I say serve, I, I say so with this intent, to provide uh, that uh, public space, in this case public service, right, that is genuinely of benefit uh, to them not as, a, not as a right. I think we need to be very careful with the rights language. Sure. Uh, we're very fortunate to have public education in these United States. 
and again, I think it's to be considered almost a status quo, right, in the in the in the in the Western and, and the developed nations of the world. But I don't I don't first think of it as a right. I think of it as a transmission of the values and, if I may, the tradition uh, of those things that we believe are worth perpetuating. We're trying to pass along to the next generation Mm -hmm. the good things, the best ideas, the ways in which they can live, our children can live, because we want them to prosper. We want them to flourish. And so when I think of K-12 public education, I'm primarily concerned with its ends, namely to serve or to provide for those families an opportunity to think through and to choose wisely what will benefit their children in this transmission, right, of to the next generation of the values that we hold dear, right? And so you think back, again, think back to our founding documents, but specifically this notion that uh, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, how will my, I've got five children, we have five children, but, you know, how will my eight-year-old come to understand that? I will, I will do my best, not only as a parent, the first educator, to convey the importance of this regime, our government, and how it's formed. But I'm actually trying to find a school that will work with me mm-hmm. to reinforce our common understanding, hopefully our common understanding, of what makes this, this regime so very beneficial to all of its citizens. I'm actually, that's the kind of parent, and I don't think I'm, I actually don't think I'm unique in this, and I don't hold myself to some, you know, that I'm, I'm special. I think that most parents mm-hmm. want better for their children, and they know that we have inherited the blessings, the prosperity of a very special place, namely these United States of America. I want to pass that along to my kids, and I want them to have the, the tools and the understanding to perpetuate it for my grandchildren, our grandchildren, right? I'm not trying to eliminate my wife from this conversation. Uh, and to sure. their children, right? So that's, that's how I view K-12 public education in these United States. I'm thinking towards the end. What is our end? Well, that, that makes a lot of sense, and I, I appreciate that. I, I remember it reminds me of, wow, this was, uh, this was eight years ago. My, my wife graduated from UNC <laughs> Greensboro with her master's in library science, yeah. and the, uh, the, the speaker at her graduation ceremony was the, uh, he had been the previous superintendent of Wake County Public Schools. for, okay. for That was kind of his last stage in his career, and he was the first person I ever heard who made a very compelling case for public education. So I came out of the homeschooling days of the, the 90s and early 2000s and mm-hmm. then went to a brick-and-mortar private school for the end of high school yep. and then on to uh, Hillsdale College from there. But and, and none of those places really made me terribly charitable towards public education. <laughs> that, just, that just wasn't – those weren't the circles I ran in. But right. his, his argument was that essentially the things that education is truly all about, preparing people for their futures – and giving them the basic tools that they need to thrive in a contemporary society is really necessary for our whole polis to survive mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, to thrive. Mm-hmm. And that that really is what the it's why and he he said in his in his speech, one of the reasons that stuck out to me, he wasn't opposed to private education mm-hmm. anyway. If people had the means to do that, he encouraged that. But he believed it was vital for our public education to educate citizens to the level that would equip them for success in the rest of their lives. That's right. And it, 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 it changed my view, point of view on public education. Mm. Now, let me ask you one more question about public education. I want to shift this over to uh, Greatheart specifically. Okay. Um, 
Now, as I was reading a little bit about charter schools, I, I kept running into this phrase, charter management companies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What exactly is a charter management company, and where does it fit into this discussion? Yeah. So the charters that I mentioned earlier are the contract with the state, uh, but that contract is between the state or the state authorizer and the comp- you know, the, either the, the group of individuals, and there's, there's always going to be like a governance structure, a board, or otherwise that will be responsible in most to my knowledge of all the state law, and I don't know it all, but uh, the state law requires that kind of board-level oversight and governance of an entity, right, that is coming in to offer and provide the service. The charter management organization is uh, a private entity that is simply stepping in and providing structure like the back office, uh, like, uh, you know, the facilities, perhaps, you know, the management of facilities, uh, the let's just refer to the back office, anything that is needed to keep these schools operational and functional, the CMO, the Charter Management Organization, uh, is the company that provides that and thus is essentially a, a kind of a logistical support for what happens uh, within the classroom, within the schoolhouse. In fact, they may own the schoolhouse, the facilities, right, uh, and contract with uh, teachers and or headmasters, but all of that is done, again, in the agreement of the charter contract such that it is this public, as you were saying earlier, this public-private kind of nexus, okay. right, to provide public education. It's, it has to be understood that whatever the state requirements are for your typical right-down-the-street district school, the same requirements will be applied to the charter school, uh, again, with perhaps some rare exceptions. If their model being allowed, right, under this authorization has some particular features, uh, we're teaching Latin at the Great Arts Academy, since we're going to talk about that in a moment. Uh, that's not a requirement, not even an offering in most of the, stu- you know, most sure. of the schools down the, down the street from us. Uh, if we have different features, that's allowable as long as the basic rudiments, I think this was your friend's point, the basic rudiments of literacy and numeracy uh, and probably citizenship, some basic mm-hmm. civics understanding, would be required and the state will have its end of year assessments at various intervals for various subject matter. All of that has to be met and or exceeded, we would hope, uh, by the charter entity. Okay, so that's the organization, the CMO rather, is that larger body, which I'll just call or refer to as the sort of back office and support. Sure to help operate the schools. So as students are looking at charter schools to kind of figure out where are they going well, where are they doing poorly, I I assume it would be a wise endeavor then to also try to figure out is there a charter management organization involved with this particular charter school that they're looking at and that might also be another avenue to consider for strategy in terms of a debate. Oh, that's right. I think that's right. Uh, You could look at CMOs uh, and there are are many uh, today uh, the, the big names in this world, in this sector, rather, uh, folks like uh, KIPP, which has actually regional entities that are state levels. It's KIP? KIPP. KIPP. Okay. Knowledge okay. is Power Program, I think, is what it originally stood for. Now everybody just calls it KIPP. Okay. IDEA, the IDEA schools, the Imagine schools, uh, the Great Arts Academies that we'll talk about. So all of these are uh, CMO operators Right, that are providing the structure and the infrastructure to support the activities of a given school. Right, But again, they are contracting with the state to okay. deliver that education for public dollars to these public school students. Okay. 
Well, let's let's bring this around to Great Hearts Academy. I, I first became familiar with Great Hearts uh, when two friends of mine at Hillsdale, I just respected their points of view very deeply, uh, Jessica McCaleb and Parker mm, Fox. Yeah. I'll have to let them know I gave them a shout-out on the show. But sure. um, Jessica's now a nun of some sort, and Parker's become Jessica. a lawyer. Oh, I know, I know Jessica. I don't know your other friend. <laughs> uh, yeah, Parker. Parker's now, uh, I think he finished law school, and he's, he's now practicing law and okay. somewhere in the Phoenix area still. Okay. But they, they both came to Hillsdale from Phoenix, and I don't remember which of the Great Hearts Academies. So this is back in 2006, 2007. Jessica taught at Veritas, and again, I don't know your friend, so I yep. can't speak to where he was at. But. So uh, they both gave, they were, uh, both, inc- they were both incredibly well-read, uh, is, uh, and both had a very humane atmosphere that they kind of brought with them wherever they went. So, uh, with, and then my next exp- exposure to Great Hearts was uh, the teacher job fair at mm. the, uh, the end of my time at Hillsdale, <laughs> and a lot of folks ended up signing on. Uh, sure. Thomas and Brooke Rowe went with uh, Great oh, yeah, Hearts. I know there. Tom Rowe. I know both of them. Yep. yep. Uh, and, mm-hmm. um, oh, goodness. I'm blanking on several other names. But okay. anyway, there were a bunch. So, uh, tell us about Great Hearts, and, and really, particularly, what is unique about Great Hearts? Mm. Well, it is a charter management organization, but it began as a single chartered school, the Veritas Academy, the Veritas Preparatory Academy, I should say. Uh, Veritas Prep was founded in 2003 with 120 students in, if I get this wrong, the founding headmaster is going to kick me, I think, three grades, seven, eight, nine, and then added a grade each year right, until they had a complete prep school. Uh, the focus or the distinctive that you're asking about would be the great books, uh, that is to say, uh, books of long-standing respect, or, or you know, from a from a tradition that acknowledges this is a master of, uh, of of the craft. And the craft could be literature, right? Could be something like uh, the works of Homer. It could be philosophical. We read Plato and Aristotle. Uh, it could be dramatic, uh, Shakespeare, right, or Milton, uh, or or or. Um, the scientific endeavor, the mathematical arts, if you will, uh, we we cover the whole uh, spectrum, right? So, the distinctive quality, as I as I see it, would be reading great books two hours a day in what is known as humane letters, where students are seated uh, around a table, actually a host of tables, because it must form kind of a rectangle or a square so that everyone can face everyone else, and work through uh, one of these perennial classics uh, to, to understand uh, what, what the story is doing, what the philosophical argument is, what, uh, what we're to take from the history of Thucydides, or Thucydides if you prefer. Um, this is the kind of distinction that I have to like, be careful of because my, yeah, my audience, these, as you said, right? Yep. McCaleb's going to catch me on that, right? She probably so, will. She will. Uh, yeah, that the, the reading of these books together with their classmates, with their peers, and obviously a teacher as guide is, is paramount. It's foremost in the work that we do, chiefly because we believe that a seminar where a text, a durable, perennial favorite, has something to say to every generation. And so we're going to be reading those together. Uh, I think that that Humane Letters course is by by far the most distinctive and obvious feature of a Great Hearts Academy, but I cannot overemphasize the fact that all of the other things, so again, a typical school day for a prep school student, we also have grammar schools, 
a prep school student is going to study not only humane letters, mathematics, the sciences, the arts, which includes poetry and drama and music and fine arts. Again, I double emphasize the fact that our students learn the techne, the techniques to produce brilliant reproductions. I mean, really brilliant reproductions of masterworks. So mm. when I go and I see a Durer uh, or a, a Durer reproduction on the wall in one of our schools, I'm just struck. I'm stunned by the fact that ordinary, run-of-the-mill kids like my own can produce that stuff. Uh, and they do. And they do it consistently. Why? And I think the art class is particularly worth highlighting because it's a, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. That's the English teacher in me. <laughs> it's an analogy for what we're doing across the curriculum, which is teaching an attentiveness and a care and a set of skills that will provide every student the ability to make, whether with words, right, as they express their thoughts in writing or in speech, or whether with paint or, or chalk or you know, charcoal, uh, or with, with their voices as they sing or play the recorder. And that's a heck of a treat, I say, <laughs> with, you know... Parents' a, a, sacrificial yeah. love. Yeah, right that's there. right. But, but learning to make music, learning to speak carefully, persuasively, thoughtfully, right? Learning to engage. I think this is crucial. Those HL, those humane letters uh, conversations are rich in part because students are learning to navigate differences, to, to see the different ideas and maybe even the clash of positions is a good thing because I'm going to be learning something if I listen carefully to what my, my peer has to say. Never mind what my teacher has to say, but my peer is going to check me, is going to challenge me, and I'm going to have to learn the art of argument, which is all but lost, right? I mean, we do a lot of arguing, but we, mostly we do shouting. Sure. We shout at one another today, right? These young people are required by dint of the, the form and the structure of that class, to learn how to present arguments civilly and to learn to respect and treat with respect those with whom you differ or you even oppose outright. It's one of my favorite parts about a really good debate round between good students to watch them both go toe-to-toe. They each have their arguments, they have their evidence, and then they get to rebuttal and they shred each other's arguments with vigor and fire and then the round is over, and it's like it's it's just like watching two excellent athletes who are done, and mm -hmm. they just shake hands, and that was the game, and they walk out better friends because of their disagreement than if sure. they had just shaken hands. And That's there's right. there's really something beautiful there. That's right. Now, so much of what you're describing fits really well with a, a classical point of view. But let me let me ask you one last question. When I wrap this up, I know sure. we're, we're getting long for this episode. Uh, I recently read two different articles. Uh, one by Luis Marcos from mm -hmm. Houston Baptist University. He had a piece in Christianity Today about okay. classical education. And then uh, Christopher Perrin of Classical Academic Press uh -huh. wrote a follow-up, a response piece, um, about uh, agreeing with everything Marcos said in the article but disagreeing with the title. Okay. By the time they were both done, they both talked about classical education as a renewal movement. Hmm. Would you see Great Hearts Academy as participating in that renewal movement and, and being kind of all about classical education, or would you disagree with that as kind of a moniker? No, I would, I would heartily embrace uh, that Great Hearts, Great Hearts Academies is a part of the renewal uh, within a very specific sector, namely classical charters, right? whereas... As an example, Thales is a private model, mm -hmm. or uh, some of the schools that, that 
Chris Perrin is working with our religious private schools with a classical identity. Great Arts happens to be leading, uh, leading the way in, uh, in classical charters and uh, is hopeful to see more of them. There may be about 220 by my count today, classical charters. We want to provide leadership there because there's no umbrella organization, no particular uh, connection to one another uh, until 18 months ago when we put forward this Institute for Classical Education and then decided last year to open up work we had been doing internally uh, for our own teachers, namely uh, the, the, the kind of professional development where we bring scholars to speak to the subject matter that we teach to teenagers or even to grammar school students. We wanted to deepen the adult understanding of the subject matter being taught, right? As adults, to think about anything from Lewis Carroll, right, to Aristotle, we brought in scholars to help our teachers as adults go deeper in the, in the material, in the texts, in the ideas that are present. We did it and had a great time at it, and our teachers loved it, and then we opened it up to other charters and privates, by the way. Chris was present at the uh, symposium. I'm trying to get Lewis down as well. Uh, Luis, sorry, down. Um, I think we're going to have uh, quite a showing this coming spring, March 2, 3, and 4, uh, 2020 in, in Phoenix. will be our second annual uh, of this open forum, right? We've done it internally before this, but, uh, but I'm really excited because we had 400 people, more than 400 people at last year's event. Uh, we're hoping it'll be five or more, five or more hundred uh, this year. And we're there, again, to support through scholarship, through research, through the dissemination of publications that highlight the really good things that are happening in the, and I will embrace the term, renewal of classical education. Well, Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for lending us your expertise on, uh, on charter schools and speaking also to the uh, subsection within that of classical charter education. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to this episode of What's the Res? We hope that you've enjoyed. And uh, in the event that there ends up being a Lincoln-Douglas resolution on charter schools, hopefully you find uh, Dr. Jackson's information uh, helpful. We'll be sure to link to uh, the Great Hearts website on, uh, on, the, on the notes for this episode. And in the meantime, if you want to find, you can follow us on all of our social media pages. We're on Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram with the hashtag at what's the res underscore. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash what's the res. You could email us at what's the res at gmail.com. And just in case that you're like me and can't get enough debate in your life, you want to check out our premium debates, you can find those at whatstheres.podbean.com slash premium, where you can find our recorded stream of debates, and you can access those for $3 a month or for $30 a year. Thank you for your support of our work here at What's the Res, and until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek truth.